Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Hadley Heath Manning, Director of Policy at Independent Women's Forum and your host for today's Working for Women podcast. I'm joined today by a very special guest, Sarah Carter, who is an IWF visiting fellow. She's also a national security investigative reporter and a Fox News contributor. Sarah has a fascinating uh, story to tell. She has recently been embedded near the Guatemalan and Honduran borders uh, among the migrant caravan that's currently headed towards the United States uh, during reporting about this group. And uh, we're just so thrilled to have Sarah as a guest today to talk with her about her experience. So thanks, Sarah, for joining our podcast. Thank you so much, Hadley. It's great to be with you. So first of all, just tell me, you know, what was it like to be there? You know, what did you see and what do you think about this caravan that's headed towards the U.S.? I, I can only say that as a journalist, there's nothing like being in the situation, being able to get the information directly from the source of the story, which is what I do with almost every story I've been involved in, and particularly story that deals with um, immigration, migrants, uh, national security issues. That's what I try to do. I was very fortunate that I was able to go to Guatemala as the second wave was preparing to enter the Guatemalan border from Honduras. I went to Guatemala. I met with uh, high-level officials there, the head of intelligence, uh, as well as Mario, Mario Duarte, who heads intelligence in Guatemala, as well as the president, President Jimmy Morales. I was able to interview him as well. And uh, then I went with the Guatemalan Defense Forces. I left the airfield in uh, Guatemala City to Chiquimula uh, by helicopter, which was a fascinating way to see uh, Guatemala uh, from the air. It's quite a lush and beautiful country, uh, volcanoes everywhere. It's it's really quite extraordinary. I, I described it as a bit like Jurassic Park as we're flying this old Huey uh, over the skies of Guatemala, looking down uh, at the terrain. And then we get to Chicamula, which is uh, a city in Guatemala that's right near the Honduran border. We land the Hilo there at not an airfield, but just kind of an open space uh, in this uh, older city. Um, we, we land, there's uh, about maybe 100 police officers, some military forces, uh, Red Cross set up uh, Migración, what they call the their immigration uh, facility right there in the middle of the town. And we take a vehicle from that point uh, to the Honduran border, which was about maybe nine to 10 miles away. And the first encampment I saw, there were roughly under, and I'm probably overestimating this, and I say this over and over again, but roughly under 200 women and children. That is what I was able to gather. Most of them were sitting around. There was one Red Cross van there. Uh, there were uh, other people from uh, migration services and uh, some local police force, as well as some military, Guatemalan military officials. And then what I saw was unbelievable. As we get closer to the border and I walk my way up from the migrant camp, this makeshift camp, there were 1,500 approximately, I mean, give or take, men mm. marching across the border into Guatemala, carrying um, a Honduran flag, a brand new Honduran flag, not a tattered one. They did not look tired. They did not remind me of refugees. 
Now, my career, I spent a lot of my career overseas. I covered Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, as particularly the U.S. Uh, war in Afghanistan. And so I was very familiar with refugees and migrants and refugee crisis. Uh, over there, when I was at the IDP camps, those are the internally displaced people's camps, you know, I would see families with bags in their hands, um, uh, it's tired, disheveled, their children maybe malnourished or hungry, dirty, exhausted uh, from a crisis that was ensuing in Afghanistan and looking for aid in Pakistan, of course, staying in tents, makeshift camps there. So there's, there's definitely, uh, when you see something happen, an event, a crisis or event, and it forces a migration of people like we saw in Syria, during, uh, particularly during the height of the Islamic State, and I was there also in Iraq, um, you see the people, they're disheveled, they're disoriented, they're trying to find food, they're trying to find a place to stay. It's heartbreaking. It's, it's actually really a horrific sight to see. This now, situation was different. It was very well coordinated. They did not appear to be fleeing under any duress. Um, and there were not a lot of families. It was a lot of men. And this was the second wave. You know, you mentioned the the smaller number of women and children. It's, it seems like an arduous journey to me. Do you know if those women and children had concerns for their safety along this you know, very long journey, and especially considering the very disproportionate number of men in the caravan? Do you think that there's a safety concern there? Oh, there absolutely was. I, I spoke to them. I speak Spanish fluently. Um, I talked to some of the women that were there. They, they were very concerned. They were concerned about their children. And what was even more distressing was the fact that they were put to the front of the line. So the elderly, the disabled, the women and children were pushed to the front of the caravan. And it became a very dangerous situation, even for the Guatemalan government. And I interviewed them about this. Uh, in Guatemala, as in Nicaragua, El Salvador, uh, Central American countries operate much like European countries. So uh, people, as long as they have their appropriate paperwork, can travel freely through the borders. Um, so, you know, people here sometimes misunderstand that. They say, well, why did the Guatemalan government let them through? Well, as long as they have appropriate paperwork, they can come through. The problem was, was when they put all the women and there were babies. You have to understand they're little young babies, three months old, four months old, six months old, a year old, in their mother's arms, and they're at the front of the line at a gate. And people, the men behind them, are now pushing against them. It becomes a very dangerous situation for the government because the first and foremost is ensuring the safety of the children and the women. So they were processing them as quickly as they could coming through the lines. Now, we saw in Mexico, you know, when they pushed through the lines and they pushed people down and there was a stampede, that became a very big problem. It also was a problem in Guatemala, too. So they were very concerned about the safety and welfare of the women and children, not just because of the lines. Now, when you talk, I've, I've interviewed many, many people on these on this migration, not just this one, but on migrations of the past when we saw the unaccompanied women and uh, children coming through during the Obama administration, for example. A lot of unaccompanied minors um, were crossing the border. I was on the border to witness that as well. Uh, the children are sometimes sexually assaulted uh, many times. Uh, some of these children are being trafficked. 
uh, by drug cartels. Um, sexual trafficking is uh, something that our government has been fighting against. I think the Trump administration has, under Ivanka Trump, has done tremendous strides, you know, uh, in fighting back uh, sexual trafficking. But in Guatemala, the group that I was with, uh, the group that I watched, there were actually seven underage minors that were not traveling with any parents whatsoever. They were removed from the group. The people that had them were taken into custody. And these were girls as young as six years old. Mm. This is a very dangerous situation. And for the mothers, I mean, sexual assault, uh, the fact that their child could become ill and there's nowhere to go, um, the fact that they could be trampled on and injured in these stampedes, there really is no care or concern by the people that organize this type of migration about the people that are involved in it. So you know? how, is and it, a, and, how, how is it organized, Sarah? Because I think that's one of the biggest questions that Americans have. We look at, you know, we see the, the caravan, images of the caravan on our news stations here at home. It looks like people are walking with, you know, empty hands almost. And, and so we wonder who's supplying the food and water. Is there medical care? Are there, you know, extra clothing, blankets for people who are part of the caravan? I mean, how, how is this organized? How did people learn about it? Was it, you know, how do people learn about these sort of waves uh, where migrants travel together? Um, explain to us what you know about the, the organization behind this caravan. Well, this is what I was able to collect while I was down there for that short period of time last week. I was there for about four days. Uh, one of the things that kept coming up was the fact that uh, the former government of Honduras under President Zelaya, Zelaya and others, um, some of the people that have worked for him, were part of how this was organized. You have to remember Central America, there's a very strong uh, political battle ensuing between the leftist governments and the conservative governments, more conservative governments. We, we also know there's a lot of corruption in all of the Central American countries, um, something that uh, some of them are fighting against, something that some of them are involved in. Um, sometimes we have to look at this, you know, with with various different glasses, because if you're just if you just look at the pictures, that is those pictures that are coming across from Univision. Those are the Spanish stations out there or CNN, um, a Spanish uh, language station and others. You'll see a lot of pictures of women and children and you think to yourself, well, maybe this was a natural event. Maybe they just all started to get together and and made their way out because they're under duress in their own home countries. What I started to see was, and from the information I was gathering from the migrants, was that not only were they told in some of their villages, look, we're, we're putting groups together, and apparently, according to the intelligence officials operating in Central America, this was uh, coordinated, or at least the beginning of the coordination began with the leftist governments there that are fighting the conservative governments that are in place right now. Um, putting these people together, and then slowly it builds steam, right? So you you get a, a group of 100 or so people, then those people start talking to their friends and other villagers and or work crews and saying, you know, look, we're going to we're, we're getting this group together. We're going to head to the United States. We're going to fight for our rights and as Central Americans to get jobs there. I mean, they get told lie after lie. They get promised things that aren't going to come true. I know a lot of the men that I interviewed, some of them were angry at Trump. We're going to tell Trump how we feel and then we're going to get jobs. And I said, well, what makes you think that you're going to get jobs? Did somebody tell you this? 
Was there a reason for you to gather together? And they said, well, we know this. We know this because we've been told this. Well, who told you this? Well, our neighbors heard this or um, the group of men that organized this heard this, you know, out coming outside of the villages. And then what happens is the media starts to pick up steam. And I'm not talking about U.S. media. I'm talking about the international media outlets that operate in Central America start saying these stories that these migration caravans are getting together. That's another way to spread the word and gather more and more people. Now, in El Salvador, what was really fascinating to me was just two days after I arrived home, I was given some documents um, when the third wave came through, started to come through. So it's probably actually like three or four days. Um, they, the El Salvadorian government was actually issuing pamphlets that showed um, the people that were joining that caravan how to maneuver their way through Mexico where all the water stops were, where the medical facilities were, where they could get clothes, how they could get buses. Now, in Honduras, they bused most of the people to the border to Guatemala. They did not walk. So those buses had to be paid for by somebody. And we know that. And we also know that they were passing out money. We also know that they were passing out supplies. Some of the guys that I saw carried the same backpacks, same hats, um, had clean clothes. Um, and some of them were um, visibly gang members uh, that belonged to MS-13. So I knew for certain there were some bad guys in this group. Wow. I couldn't gauge what, who everybody was, but, that, but that's, what, that's what I gathered. Um, there needs to be a very serious investigation into this. I know the Guatemalan government, President Morales told me that a priority for him is to uh, ensure that there is an investigation and work cooperatively with the United States because a lot of people's lives were endangered. And not, not only that, it also um, imbalances the economy in their countries. When you have so many people fleeing, there's, there's a difficulty there in handling, you know, the jobs, the work that they were doing, also the precarious situation of trying to handle and the cost of handling this flow of migrants across, uh, you know, these multiple countries and going into Mexico. Well, you know, Sarah, it's, it's fascinating that people say we're going to the United States and we're going to get jobs. Do you think the people in the caravan are, are well informed about U.S. immigration law or uh, what things they should say and do when they get to the border? Do they know that the U.S. military has been sent to secure our border? And what do they anticipate effectively from our immigration laws when they reach the U.S. border? This is what's so incredible, Hadley, is that they, they are they are taught what to say. Now, a lot of this will come to from immigration lawyers that go down there and try to inform them of what they need to do, how to apply for asylum, how they're going to make a credible fear claim. Um, so this is what happens. They basically get told you have to have a claim of credible fear. So people will say, and this was a big thing, and uh, I remember during the big exodus uh, during Obama administration is that they would say, uh, I'm, a, I'm a victim of domestic violence. My husband beats me up. If I go back home, um, he'll probably kill me and my children. Or I come from a village that's overrun by MS-13. I'm terrified for my life. Uh, it's always the same story, always the same story rehearsed over and over again. I can't economically survive. My family can't survive. Um, but usually a credible fear claim has to be I'm a, uh, I'm a political dissident 
or I have been, uh, someone's coming after me or my family and our lives are being threatened. And so they're very well aware of the, of what they need to say. Now, when the president talks about how these laws are so lackadaisical and how we've just let so many people in, he's 100% right. I have spoken to, I can't even tell you how many people in immigration and customs enforcement, border patrol agencies that hear these same stories again. Sometimes they even catch the person lying. For example, they'll have people that are claiming to be from India who say they're Christian, but that they're, you know, uh, or that they're Hindu and they're, you know, in an area that's mostly Muslim and they're under duress. But then when they dig a little bit deeper, they find out, oh, well, this person's actually from Pakistan. They're actually Muslim. And they, you know, they'll say to them a question like, well, what's your, what's the biggest Christian holiday for you? And they'll say something like, well, the 4th of July, because they won't know the answer to that. You know, they've come from so far or they'll just make up something. And then the, But it doesn't matter. They say even when they find out, and this was particularly true under the Obama administration, that even when they did find out that this person wasn't giving them a truthful answer, they would still stamp them as approval to go to the courts, which means they come into the United States. um, They don't have enough space to hold them. uh, And they release them out into the, you know, they basically release them with a slip of paper that says report to court. So they have to report back to the courts to fight for their immigration status, but they never return to the U.S. court system. They just kind of disappear into uh, the fabric of American society, uh, not to be found again unless, you know, for some reason ICE has a detainer or somebody comes into contact with them law enforcement-wise. So this this becomes the overburdening problem in our society. Other Other ICE agents will say, look, our pre-asylum screeners are just just stamping everybody in. There's mm. no control. Every story seems so sad or they want or they believe every story that they're just letting them in. A lot of times it's because of the way an administration's run. Now, under the Trump administration, things have changed significantly. But because the laws aren't being followed by the, you know, by the book and because there's so many loopholes, it's become a real big problem. Now, do they know that the troops are at the border? By that time, when I was there, um, that wasn't a question that I could ask them. Now I do know that they understand troops are heading to the border. I think that they know that a, a lot of them now realize that they had been lied to. Mexico is, they're demanding buses now in Mexico because the Mexican government isn't assisting them, I guess, getting to the border. So they're kind of demanding that they get assistance to get to the U.S. border. Uh, so it's it's a really precarious situation. You have thousands of people trying to make it into the country. But remember, this has been going on every day for decades. Mm-hmm. How many people are trying to get in here? We're just seeing, you know, this flow because the news is focused on it. But every day we're dealing with people trying to enter the United States illegally. And uh, it becomes a problem for our law enforcement officials who are really trying to focus in as well on who are the bad guys. Um, what is the contraband that's coming in? So not only are we dealing with migrants, we're dealing with really bad players trying to smuggle people in either for human trafficking purposes or possibly even worse than that, national security implications and contraband coming across our border. We really do not have the resources to handle all of this. So Sarah, maybe this is a good uh, last question. I just want to ask, because you mentioned so many important considerations, how do we as Americans, how do we 
frame this bottom line? I mean, there's a lot of Americans, I think, who are sympathetic to uh, the people from around the world who want to come to the United States for security, for, you know, economic reasons, to pursue the American dream, to be a part of a, a safe community. Uh, I'm an American. I love living here, you know, but what do we, what do we think of, how do we think about this in those terms? Because of course our hearts go out to people who, uh, don't have the best of situations wherever they live, or if they're facing, you know, legitimate security threats. Um, but we also have to be concerned with our own public safety here. How do we frame this and how do we balance those concerns as Americans? Well, two things. Um, first, just let me say that sending the troops to the border isn't just about this flow, of migration. It's sending a very direct message to the whole world. We are not going to take this anymore. Because remember, we are not going to be played um, by these other political systems that are in disarray uh, in an effort to affect us. And we have to be very concerned about the fact that this happened just before the elections, the November 6 elections this year. There was a reason for that. Secondly, of course, we are a sovereign nation. We are one of we are a beacon of light for the rest of the world, an incredible nation where everywhere I've traveled in the world, whether it be Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Singapore, anywhere, people think of America and should rightly so think of America as a great beacon of hope for everyone else. So it's no wonder that so many people want to be a part of this great nation. But we also have to consider the lives of the people that are in these types of migrations. Their lives are in danger every single day. The children that try to escape or that are taken in these caravans, remember drug cartels are operating, operating all the transient routes into the United States. You do not go through Mexico and make it to the border without having to deal with the Mexican drug cartels, which are organizations unto themselves. Hundreds of billions of dollars these organizations make in moving contraband into the U.S., whether that's narcotics, heroin, fentanyl, child trafficking, uh, uh, trafficking of women into the U.S. This is a very dangerous situation. If people care about these migrants, if they care about the people that are there, they should understand that and they should work with Congress, whatever, we need to enforce our rule of law. We need to be able to maintain our sovereignty and have a country that's worth coming to. Our borders are there for a reason. It means something. We have a balanced system here. And in an effort to try to mitigate this from happening in the future, what our government should be doing is holding accountable these governments whether it's El Salvador, whether it's Honduras, Mexico, other countries around the world, that they provide the services that their people need in order to live a good and decent life. Uh -huh. You know, we have to be responsible for ourselves. They need to be responsible for their nations. There should not be thousands of people fleeing from, you know, our southern, uh, fleeing from the south to come north to America because their countries are so filled with corruption, oh. are so filled with, uh, with problems, both socially and economic uh, issues that have really degenerated parts of the world. And in order for them to accept money from us for our, for our assistance, they need to be doing the work, too, to help mitigate that. It'll not only help their nations. It'll help us as well, and we can work together as partners. And I think until we get to that point, 
where we really draw the line. And I really believe the Trump administration is doing this. This is the first time, and I've been covering this since the Bush administration. This is the first time that I've actually seen a president take a strong stance against this and say, look, this isn't just about migration. This is about national security and protecting the United States. We're a land of immigrants. Yes, that is true. But we're a land of laws. And in order for people to come here, they need to respect those laws. And we also need to hold their governments accountable. And the people who are organizing these uh, caravans need to be held accountable because they're putting people's lives in danger. And that is not right. It's just plain wrong. Sarah, that's a really powerful perspective. And, you know, especially considering your firsthand experience with the caravan, your years of experience covering uh, national security issues. We really appreciate your time. I know I've learned a lot from this discussion. I hope our listeners have too. I want to thank Sarah Carter. Again, she's a national security investigative reporter, Fox News contributor, and visiting fellow at Independent Women's Forum. Um, If you want to learn more about Sarah's work and other work that we're doing on immigration and a wide array of other public policy issues, I encourage all of our our listeners to visit iwf.org. I'm Hadley Heath-Manning, Director of Policy. Thank you, Sarah, for joining us. This has been another edition of our Working for Women podcast. Uh, We'll see you all again next time. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.